0: You are listening to Hello Francis, a podcast for curious creatives and nano-entrepreneurs who seek knowledge, purpose, and community. Hello Francis is brought to you by the creative firm and solutionist agency, Francis Roy, and is recorded at the Francis Roy office in Valparaiso, Florida. A lineup of guests, friends, and mentors candidly share their diverse wisdom and experience come back weekly for new episodes. Never to exceed 30 minutes, this podcast is an easy addition to your playlist of favorites. Let's get started with this week's guest. Hey guys, you're listening to Hello Francis. I'm your host Chantel Dedegue and Hillary's here with me today. Hey guys. And we're trying really, really hard to be as calm as humanly possible because we have a super exciting guest. I'm going to introduce our guests first, and then we'll get into uh, the casual informalities of our podcast. Our guest this week is Todd Henry. If you guys listened to our episode like three weeks ago, mm-hmm. where Hill and I were on, and we read uh, Todd's book, Herding Tigers, and we've been using the workbook, and you probably know at least our take about him, but he's an author, an international speaker, a consultant, and an advisor. He has been recently advising our team, even though he doesn't know it, uh, through his book, Herding Tigers, and his podcast, Accidental Creative has more than 10 million downloads and has provided weekly tips and interviews with top thinkers, leaders, and artists since 2005. No pressure. Yeah, on top Henry.
1: Thank you. It's so good to be here. And I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you're finding the workbook helpful. That's, that's fantastic. That really means a lot because put a lot of effort into making that, you know, because it was sort of, it was an extra thing. It wasn't like something that we were selling. It's just something we wanted to create to be a resource. I'm really grateful that that's working for you.
0: It really is working for us. We love activation. And so Hill and I read the book together and we were like, okay, but we what do we do? Where do we go? And we started scouring your website and downloaded it. And the way that we've been using it is that each week um, I've been writing questions that we send to the team because we're about 50% remote. And their questions, the way that you break them out, not your exact questions, but how they're applicable here in our creative space and the answers that we've been getting back from people is changing our business, like really, it's been fantastic.
1: That's yeah. so good to hear. And good for you for not just reading things, but applying them. That's, you know, that's that's what changes, that's <laughs> what changes uh, culture and that's what makes people effective. So good for you. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah, awesome. Well, we want to know more about you and we're so curious. We know that you have your pod, obviously, but there's a lot of things going on. We're just wondering, like, what about creatives led you to write a leadership book that's just specifically for them?
1: I cut my teeth as a creative director. So I led teams of designers and writers, et cetera, for a number of years. And in the midst of that was when I started the Accidental Creative Podcast in 2005, just to talk about some of the dynamics of creating on demand and some of the pressures that we experience. It's very different when you have to solve problems under pressure or you have to create under pressure than it is to just do it, you know, with all the time in the world no pressure, you know, all the freedom you want, especially when you're creating for clients. It's a very, very different dynamic. So I just wanted to talk about some of those pressures and what it feels like to be a creative pro. And that led to my first book, The Accidental Creative, which was for creative pros and basically instructed them how to organize life to help them be more effective, which then led to you know, another book called Die Empty and another book called Louder Than Words. And I would go out and I would speak at organizations or at conferences or, you know, other places. And people would come up to me and say, Hey, the accident creative was really helpful to me or die empty was really helpful for me. And it really helped me organize my world. And I feel better positioned, but let me tell you about my manager. You know, my manager just doesn't get what it takes for creative people to do their work. I've, I feel like I'm in a machine and they're trying to squeeze as much efficiency out of me as possible. Uh, and I feel like I'm compromising the value I'm creating because they simply don't understand what I need in order to do my best work. And I want to do my best work. I just feel like I'm sort of everything set up against me doing that. And so I thought, you know, that probably means I need to write another book, which is purely through the lens of leading creative people. What is it that talented people need in order to thrive? Uh, And so that was Herding Tigers. I started writing that in 2015 and it released in 2018. And primarily it was about these two core dynamics that talented people need in order to thrive. Uh, Stability, which means Clear expectations, clear playing fields, clear boundaries, clarity of process. Um, They need to know the processes are going to shift halfway through the project. You know things like that, and also challenge, which means they want to be pushed. They want to try new things. They want to experiment. The problem is that those two dynamics exist in tension with one another, and many organizations tend to skew toward one or the other under pressure. Either they become over stabilized. You know, let's over processize everything. Let's make everything very predictable, everything very stable, or it's just pure chaos, right? Uh, no process. We're just going to kind of wing it. We'll just make it, make it up as we go. Either one of those can be very damaging to teams. And so really that's, that's what prompted me to write "Hurting Tigers, which is to help people understand those two dynamics of stability and challenge and how they play out daily for creative people. And then what, what we can actually do about it to help people be more effective.
0: Wow. And it, it certainly has been helpful to us and our team here. I mean, Our agency launched in 2016, and it's just really been kind of moments of stability, moments of challenge, Mm -hmm. and your book is really helping us kind of close together and embrace them both simultaneously in a way that makes everyone feel supported. It makes everyone feel like their, their time and their energy is very focused and that we're doing it for something. Right, we're, we're doing it for something that's meaningful, it's meaningful to us individually as creatives, but also to our clients and that it's impactful, even the mundaneness of our job. I mean, I think everyone thinks that being in a creative field means that every day is just this like glamorous, amazing, you just get to wake up and work <laughs> yeah. on the coolest stuff. <laughs> When in reality, we probably have 20% of our time is like bursts of that really exciting creativity. And the other 80% is the stuff that keeps us all employed and can feel very monotonous. So that is really how your book has been helping us.
1: That's wonderful to hear. And and that's really one of the core messages I always try to deliver anywhere I go and present or speak or just get to spend time with people is There are two descriptors in the phrase creative pro. The first one is creative, which is great. And that's the one we all love because we get to be creative every day for a living. The second part though, the pro part means, you know sometimes you're gonna do things you don't necessarily wanna do. You're gonna have to deliver product that you maybe aren't thrilled about, but that's what the client wants. There are times we have to recognize Every single thing we do can't be the greatest thing we've ever done. Sometimes we have to say, listen, we have constraints, we have limitations, limited resources, limited focus, limited finance, finances, uh, client has a limited budget. At some point, we're going to have to compromise um, in order to get to a product that delivers most of the value most of the time. And nobody really is excited about that, but that's the nature of being a creative professional. You know, And that's also why I always tell creative pros, listen, you cannot look to your job to fulfill the sum total of your creative engagement impeachment. Um, you need to have a portfolio in your life. Part of that portfolio needs to be things that you're exploring outside of your work, that you're not being paid for, that nobody's looking over your shoulder and judging. Because if you just look to your job to fulfill you creatively, you're going to burn out because you're a creative professional. You're a pro, meaning sometimes you just have to be a mercenary. Now, does that mean we never get to do things we love? No, of course not. I mean, of course, there are going to be projects where we really get to pour ourselves into it. We have a lot of freedom and we really are just super proud and we want to kind of put it up on the mantle and point people to it, those are wonderful moments. But as a creative pro, our job is to do the job and to leverage our creativity in the in the service of our client and the and the ultimate objectives. And so you know, I think that what the dynamic that you're describing, the sort of going from stability to challenge, you know, we all go through that. That's normal. You know, there, it's not a stable, set it and forget it thing. We're going to move through seasons of hyper growth. We've got a bunch of new clients. Now we need to build some systems to accommodate those clients. Okay, now maybe we've overcorrected. Now things are a little too predictable and stable, and people feel like they're in lather, rinse, repeat mode. Now we need to, you know, find some more challenge. You're always going to be going through those seasons, which I'm glad you're doing, which is why it's important to continue to have those conversations about how are you feeling right now? You know, where are we trending is more important than where are we as an organization?
0: Well, and that kind of leads into our second question because Phil and I work a lot on just the evolution of what we're doing here and you hear like delegate, delegate, but when you delegate, what happens to you? You know, once you delegate and that is pushed to the people, you're trusting them to do their job, what you hired them to do, there is, there has to be kind of like a self-analysis in and in an evolution of what you're doing. If not, you're doing nothing, right? Yeah. Uh, so in that Really, in chapter five of your book, Lead Brilliance, you discuss just helping creatives become the best they can be individually while helping them understand and accept their role within the overall organization. And so right now, we're really identifying our builders, fixers, and optimizers as you outline, How do we recognize those individuals in the workplace? Are there any tips that you can give us to really make sure we're utilizing this tool the best way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so I will say, first of all, I will say it within each of my books is the seed of the next book. And I will say <laughs> that um, the motivation code work that I did with Pruvio actually explodes those categories even more and really helps identify within, even within builders, there are multiple profile, like motivational profiles, but I'll just give you a quick sort of way of thinking about builders, fixers, and optimizers to help you begin to identify who those people are on your team. The builders are the people who are always looking for wide open blank spaces, right? These are people who, if there's a new project that nobody's ever done before, and you go to them and say, I don't know if this is possible. They're the ones who are going to step up and say, yeah, it's possible. Let's let's go do it. Let's make it happen. If something is already existing, they will sometimes come in and blow it up just so that they can build something brand new. Uh, It has to be their idea. It has to be something they've thought of. That's typically how a builder functions. They love to build things. They love to start from a blank slate and build things. The fixers are the people who are always looking for problems. So if there isn't a problem again, they will often create a problem in order to have something to fix or they will begin to look for problems in places that maybe aren't necessarily terribly efficient for the organization. So if these are your problem solvers, these are the people who you want to give a problem to and just let them run with it because they will like a dog with a bone, they will just stay at it until, you know, until they get to the to the to the solution. And then the optimizers are the people who love to squeeze efficiencies out of organizations. So these are your operations people. These are the people who are uh, trying to figure out an even better way of tracking time, an even better way of, you know, leveraging our assets against, you know, our objectives. And so You know, the optimizer, if you put an optimizer in the role of, say, like the leader of an organization, they're going to be great at optimizing what's already there, of squeezing the value out of what's already there, but they're very unlikely to be looking to take the organization to the next place. Similarly, if you put a builder in an optimizer role, they're going to try to you know squeeze the efficiency out of the system. They're going to blow it up and build a new one, right? Which isn't always what you need. So this is why it's really important to understand these tendencies of people on your teams and make sure you're pointing them toward the right kind of work. You know, if it's a brand new client, let's say that, uh, you know, is open to completely new and fresh direction. I mean, that's a great opportunity for a builder. If it's a client who just really wants iteration on an existing campaign and wants to try to squeeze squeeze more value out of an existing campaign, well, your optimizer might be the right person to put against it because they'll figure out how to optimize the campaign. Same thing for a fixer. If, hey, we can't figure out why this isn't working. Great, put them against it and they'll figure out the solution pretty quickly because that's what they're driven to do. So once you begin to understand the profiles of the people in your team, it begins to identify maybe some of the areas of behavior that are impeding team progress. Maybe you didn't understand before, you didn't know why it was happening, you just knew it was happening. And now you can say, oh, it's because Sue is a builder and we keep putting her in optimizer oriented roles. So she keeps blowing everything up. She Keeps coming into a meeting and saying, why are we doing this? Let's let's go back to the drawing board. Let's completely reinvent this, right? Well, no, no. You know, we've got a history, we've got some organizational learning here, some memory that we need to keep intact.
0: Well and I think that, that just hearing you say all that, we, it also can be utilized for a lot of our listeners who are just starting a business and maybe they're hiring that first person or those first few people on their team to really kind of reflect and self-analyze. Are you a builder? If you are a builder, maybe don't hire a builder in that first, you know, in that first hire. I know that that was something that I went through very early on in the agency was trying to hire to my weaknesses, you know, and, and really determining who and where I would need help right in the beginning, even though we were starting off very small. So I think that's really great guidance.
1: Yeah, agree. Yeah. It's always good to hire around your strengths, right? So hire people who can supplement the things that you already do well in areas maybe that you don't do so well. And that's what I've tried to do as well. You know, since I've been off on my own building my own business, I'm really good at creating content. I'm really good at you know delivering that content, going out, being in front of people, sharing ideas, writing books. I am not a good salesperson, and I've known that for a long time. I'm not the smile and dial kind of person. I'm the kind of person who will just say, hey, I made something. Why aren't you buying it? Right? It's, it's here, and it's really good, and it'll really help you. Why don't you buy it? I'm not really the kind of person who's good at, at going out and selling. And so I've learned similarly, Like I need people who are gifted in ways I'm not gifted in order to help get the word out. And I'm considering your very kind words. I'm thinking about hiring both of you to help. get. The- <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I couldn't we afford did. you. I couldn't afford you. <laughs> we we
0: kill that, Todd. We, we would. would. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I love what you're saying about love and work. It reminds me of Marcus Buckingham. I'm getting mm-hmm. ready to see him next week, speak at the National Boys and Girls Club Conference. I'm so excited. And I listened to your episode with him on Accidental Creative It's so difficult because there's so many, I'm going a little bit off question here. I'm sorry, but there are so many things that we're reading and hearing about, like work is not family. You don't necessarily have to love your work. I think that certainly makes sense in certain environments, but for creatives, it's almost like if I can't at least find something that I love here every day, I have a very difficult time self-motivating. And so do you feel like, I mean, even though that's an emotion, but love and work are very important together.
1: So I think it's important to distinguish between work and job. So you execute work through your job, but your job is not the sum total of your work. And, and there's a distinction there to be made. Your body of work, and I wrote about this in Diante, Your body of work is a portfolio that includes your job, but it's much more than your job. And I think where people get stuck sometimes is in this mindset that says my job equals my work. Therefore, my job has to be completely fulfilling. And if it's not completely fulfilling, if I don't love every minute of my job, I need to go find a new job because that means there's something wrong. And it's simply not true. The reality is. Your job can help you accomplish something that you love, an outcome that you love very deeply. And you can find ways of accomplishing that outcome through your job, through your work, even if you don't necessarily love the tasks that you do all day, but the outcome is what keeps you coming back. This is sort of the myth. I call it the fallacy of follow your passion. We hear this, uh, this phrase all the time, follow your passion, follow your passion. When we use the word passion, we often use it to mean something I like, something I enjoy, you know, like I like bicycling or I like ice cream or I like, you know, whatever, designing, you know, whatever it is. And that's fine, but that's not what the root of the word passion actually means. If you look at the word in its original language form, it comes from the Latin word that means to suffer. So when we talk about passion, what we mean is something that we're willing to suffer for, something we're willing to suffer on behalf of. So when I say follow your passion, what I mean is follow an outcome that you are willing to suffer if necessary in order to achieve. That's a very different way of thinking about passion than I should love my every task I do all day, which is what many people think when they think follow your passion. They they think it means I want to do something that I just love all day long. I just enjoy my tasks all day long. Well, I enjoy watching Netflix. You know, I'm not going to get paid for doing that. I love impacting people through my work. That is something I love. It's something that motivates me. It drives me. I love challenges. That's something that drives me. I love influencing behavior. That's something that drives me. So those outcomes that I'm driving toward are part of my passion, my productive passion. Now, do I love all of the tasks that I have to do in order to get to those ends? No. But does that mean I don't love my work? No, of course I love my work because I love the outcome that my work allows me to achieve, which fuels me because that's my productive passion. Little sort of rarely disclosed secret, I don't like to write. Writing is not something I live to do. I don't wake up in the morning thinking, boy, I can't wait to write today. As a matter of fact, it's kind of a grind for me to write. And I've written now six books. My sixth comes out this September. I've written six books in a little over 10 years. That's a lot of words, right? A lot of time spent writing. I've been under deadline since 2009, basically, is kind of what what that amounts to. (laughs) I don't love to write, but I love the outcome of having written. Does that mean I'm, I'm not passionate about my work? No, it means I'm deeply passionate about my work. It just means that what excites me about the work isn't the task. It's the outcome. It's as I'm writing, I'm thinking about the people I'm going to be able to impact through the work that I'm doing, through the grind that I'm enduring. I'm going to be able to, to impact people on the other side of it. And I think most productive creative pros recognize that It's like creative professional. They recognize there are parts of my work, parts of my job, certain tasks I'm really going to enjoy doing, but there are going to be other tasks I'm going to need to do in order to accomplish an outcome that matters deeply to me. The things I have to suffer through in order to get to the outcome on the other side. And that's what it means to follow your passion. It means to follow the outcome that you're willing to suffer on behalf of if necessary, in order to see it achieved.
0: That's the real thing. that. That was a real deal and brilliant. I had never heard it explained like that. And that just totally opened and blew my mind. You got the big sigh. I really sigh, appreciate it. The big sigh from myself. Yeah, I was <laughs> like <laughs> suffering. Well, I <laughs> think it's because you feel it. And sometimes you like really can identify the passion. Like I'll be writing. I love to write kind of the opposite. Sometimes I'll write for hours and hours. And my husband's like, can, you probably need to stop. And I'm like, if I don't get this out, I might die. So I, I need it. I feel it coming out and it is, but it's not like the passion doesn't always feel good. Sometimes it hurts, like it's painful. It is a little bit of that suffering. It is it for sure. And I really identify with too is when you're really, really passionate, it's sometimes hard to identify exactly what it is through the process that you are passionate about. So that part about, like you said, you've written six books, but you're not necessarily passionate about the writing piece. You almost look at, like, I've looked at like my line of work for a while, and you're like, I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not really feeling this piece, but I know the bigger picture. I'm much more passionate about what's going to come from this once it's completed, not the actual task I'm working on. That blew my mind. Yeah. I think it's a daily occurrence around here, <laughs>
1: <laughs> which is Sorry. great,
0: but I think that's why it's so important. I mean, that there are a lot of generalizations about work in general, but the uniqueness of it and how it like just manifests itself here in a creative environment, it's so important, I think, that we have need understanding and, and leaders like yourself who are like, no, yes, this is the overall big picture about work and how you should be kind of feeling and motivating. But you are a unique individual because you are creative. And so you're looking at the world a little differently. And I see that. and I see you. I think that mm-hmm. is why that's so important for us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh gosh. Okay. So we have to ask because we see you as like just an advice giver. We're like, what would Todd Henry do? We don't know. Um,
1: But what is some of the best advice you've received today? Probably the the advice that sticks the most in my mind came from a former manager who, when I was first starting to speak and I was starting to teach a little bit publicly, I went to this person who had done a lot of speaking and said, you know, what, what would be your advice to me? And he said, get your reps in. You've you've got to get your reps in. There's no substitute for just getting your reps in. And so I started looking for opportunities anywhere and everywhere I could just to get in front of people and start teaching in front of people. And that meant getting in rooms of 10 people or 20 people or five people or just a meeting room full of people and just start teaching and illustrating things and coming up with new ways of explaining things. And I did that for a handful of years truthfully, until I started getting opportunities to share in a, in a larger forum. Uh, and, you know, and now I've spoken to rooms of 10 to 20,000 people and for you know, 400,000 people around the world at one time, you know, at remote locations or whatever, but it all started with just getting my reps in. And I think that's good advice for anybody who wants to do anything, right? If you want to be a leader, an organizational leader, how do you do that? You do that by starting to assume leadership roles. And that might mean in your organization, or it might mean you need to step up and lead some local neighborhood initiative and just get a feel for what it means to lead in those contexts. You know, you need to embody the activities of a leader. Get your reps in. You know, if you want to be a writer, write every single day. That's how you you know, get your reps. in. don't wait till somebody offers you a book deal because the odds are they're not going to do that if you haven't already written a bunch anyway. And so that probably is the best advice I've received from someone uh, in a professional context is just get your reps in.
0: I feel like we really feel like that with this pod. You know, the um, Hill was my very first um, hire here at Francis Roy and she was my intern before that in a different role. And our dynamic has been just so amazing. But, you know, I host the podcast, but there'd be no Francis Roy without Hill telling me every week I've got to get my reps in, honestly. Because there are some weeks where I'm just like, I can't. Like I'm tired, I don't even know what I'm gonna talk about. I, I'm tired of hearing myself, like it's just so difficult. And she is that consistent driver that is like, well, I don't know what it's gonna be, but you better get on it because um, we promise every Monday, you know? And so we really feel that, you know, almost three years later, be three years, September the 9th, it's so important to have that this relationship that really is like the consistencies piece. We're supporting each other, you know, and I think mentoring back and forth, back and forth and knowing that it's just really the reps, as you say, that has gotten this, it's the reason why it's still here. It's the reason why we're interviewing you
1: today. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I feel the same. I mean, I started the Axon creative podcast in late 2005 and I occasionally will go back and listen to some of those first episodes. And while the, while the content, I mean, the material was fine. uh, The presentation was, you know, less than stellar because i i just I, it was a new format it was something brand new actually the accidental creative was not my first attempt at a podcast i actually had launched a few other podcasts prior to the accidental creative before that one sort of took off so you know i think that advice is you know, pe- people don't try things because they don't want to fail uh, i think sometimes people would rather live with perceived invulnerability than test their limits and realize they actually have some you know that to actually fail but until we're willing to do that until we're willing to fail we are willing to test our limits. We don't know what we're capable of. And, you know, I mean, the accidental creative was a hobby that turned into a career, basically, only because I was willing to try that and to test and fail. And it may not have, it may have failed, and that's fine. I mean, I had a perfectly fine career before that, but I think we need to be willing to step outside of ourselves in order to grow, which means sometimes being willing to look foolish, being willing to fail. That's why it's harder, the more successful you are, it's harder to achieve growth because growth means risk, which means potential failure, which means that it could be a stain on your perceived reputation or whatever you're trying to protect. The more successful you are, the more you feel like you have to protect. So you have to be aware of that. And you also have to be willing to step out, step out into places where you might fail you know, where that reputation might be tarnished, at least in your own eye. And the reality is when you do that, you'll realize more often than not, people really don't care. People aren't paying attention to you nearly as much as you think they are, but we have to be willing to step out and to try new things if we want to continue up the growth curve. Well, that
0: felt like a call to action. So we'll move to the next question. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's the last question we have for you to talk but what is next for you?
1: So I have a book releasing in September, which I'm excited about. And I haven't even really even announced it or talked about it yet. So this is the first time I've actually even mentioned it much to anyone. It's called Daily Creative, and it's a daily reader for creative professionals. It's basically designed to be a you know really short snippet with challenge and then a question every single day for people to consider. Sort of like the workbook that you're using, right? In a way. But just a little paragraph about things, you know, like, hey, here's this assassin called dissonance. How are you experiencing this right now? Or, Hey, here's a thought about how to organize your work today that maybe you've never considered. you just a really simple, practical daily practice for people to implement as creative pros. And the, the, the thing I've realized about writing a book like this, which by the way, is 366 days. And I wrote it in about two and a half months, which is crazy. It's longer than any book I've ever written. And I wrote it in like a third of the time, but it's all stuff I've been teaching for years. So it's, it was, you know, pretty easy from a content standpoint. You know, I would say the one thing about a book like this is not every day is going to resonate because it just depends on where you are at that moment. And then say, you know, a year from now, you come back and read that same entry and it's going to be the most relevant thing in the world because of what you're going through. And so I wanted to write something that could just be a companion for people throughout the course of their life. And every time they go through it it's going to feel different to them because their experiences are different so that's what's next for me and truthfully just kind of hoping that the you know speaking and training and live event industry picks up soon i know we're starting to see more live events but there's still a little bit few and far between so i'm hopeful that this fall i'll be able to be out on the road and traveling to places like destin florida and and, uh, present here yeah
0: well we would yeah we would like move a mountain, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> we would move a mountain, and we're buying a thousand copies of your book. Obviously, everyone's getting that for Christmas. But <laughs> honestly, thank you so much yeah. for joining us and providing just a real life part two to our uh, podcast review of Herding Tigers. Loved it, and your insight is just honestly so priceless. And just being able to kind of spend time with you is just amazing. Yes, yeah. thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: So if you're listening, and we know you are because this has been super engaging, I think this is the least amount I've spoken an entire episode, (laughs) just got to say something. Um, Please send us an email if you have a question for Todd Henry. Hello at francisroy.com. We're going to give you all the links. There's tons of promo coming out about this episode, so you're going to easily be able to find all of Todd's books, his podcasts, just Mm -hmm. kind of like all the things, but What an exciting episode. I don't want to insult anybody else, but it might be my favorite. So just be mad about it. Email us and let us know how mad you are. It's my favorite. Yeah. (laughs) So thanks again. Thanks so much, Todd. And we'll talk to you guys next Monday with a new guest. And whoever that guest is needs to bring it.